Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent to retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, They've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high-cash-flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash pockets. Fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Kathy Fetke. Kathy, how are you doing? Well, you may or may not know I'm obsessed with following the Federal Reserve, so today's (laughs) show is exciting to me because I feel like maybe we'll get some insights when when Jerome Powell is speaking so cryptically. You know, you need someone to interpret that. Yeah, this is a great episode. If you haven't heard before, we were having a guest on, Nick Timoros, who's been on the podcast. I guess this is his third time now. Uh, He is the chief economics correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. So a super well-credentialed reporter. Sounds like he basically just flies around and follows Jerome Powell, whatever he does. Maybe maybe we should do that. Let's go to, I think we should go to Jackson Hole next summer. Sounds like a great place to go visit. Absolutely. (laughs) Just a big bunch of nerds in a beautiful place. So maybe we'll go do that. (laughs) But in reality, Nick does all of that for us and just 
helps explain the Fed's policy and thinking in a super digestible and interesting way. So, Kathy, what are you going to be looking out for in this conversation? Um, you know, just confirmation that everything's going to be okay and that they're not going to throw us into a deep, dark depression, uh, which you know, <laughs> I don't think they're going to. Uh, but just just to get a better read on on what's going on, because a lot of people probably didn't realize until the last 18 months, even who the Fed is and what their role is and so forth. And um, and there's probably still a lot of confusion about that, uh, which we we probably should explain to people who they are and what they do. Well, that's a good point, Kathy. So I will just briefly explain what the Federal Reserve is. It's basically a government entity. It's our central bank in the United States. And they are responsible for monetary policy, which is basically what is going on with our money supply. And they have a dual mandate from Congress. So their job is to use monetary policy to, one, ensure price stability, is how they say it, which basically means control inflation. And the other part is to maximize employment, which, aka, just means make the economy grow as quickly as possible. And why the Fed, I think, is so controversial and so interesting is because those two things are completely at odds with one another. Yeah. Like inflation is driven by an overheated economy. So their job is to heat the economy, but not lead to inflation. So they're always sort of walking this tightrope, you know, like on a seesaw, trying to balance two conflicting mandates. And it's why I think Kathy and I are so fascinated by everything they do, because obviously it impacts us as investors, as Americans, uh, but it's also just kind of a soap opera also, like what they're going to be doing. Or maybe only I see it that way. Well, it's a soap opera that we all get to be a part of. <laughs> so it affects us. And, and that's why it matters. Absolutely. I just think like, people follow it like it's a sports conference or <laughs> maybe true. maybe not the average person does. But the people who are, are nerds like us, um, you know, read his transcripts, read the Fed's transcripts after everything he says, because you really obviously it impacts us, like Kathy said, Um but it's just kind of incredible how much power over the economy this this group, this small group of people had. So it really is important to pay attention to. And that's why we're bringing on Nick. So with no further ado, let's bring on Nick Timoros from The Wall Street Journal. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Nick Timmerous, welcome back to On the Market. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. For those of our listeners who didn't join us for the first two times you were on the show, can you please reintroduce yourself? Sure. I um, am the chief economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, and I wrote a book, Trillion Dollar Triage, about the economic policy response to the COVID shock of 2020. Yes, and you have been an incredible uh, insider for us and reader of the tea leaves about Fed policy, and so we're excited to have you back. Just last week, uh, we are recording this at the end of August. It is the 30th of August. Just last week, the Fed did uh, meet in Jackson Hole. Nick, did you get to go to Jackson Hole, by the way? Yeah, I was there for the conference this year. All right. Well, that sounds like a nice place to go visit. Hopefully a fun work trip. What were some of the big headlines from the symposium? Well, the focus of the of the symposium was on Uh, Chair Jay Powell's speech, he always gives the morning uh, opening address. Of course, last year, his speech was kind of a rifle shot where he, you know, squarely dedicated the Fed to bring down inflation, saying that they would accept a recession. I mean, he didn't use those words, but he said there would be some pain involved. And so that kind of had everybody's antenna up for this year. Well, how will he follow, you know, 2022? What's he going to say now? This year, he was uh, more nuanced, uh, you know, focused still on bringing inflation down. The way I think about the Fed right now is there was an interview that Kobe Bryant had uh, in 2009 after the NBA Finals, 
The Lakers had taken a two-game-to-nothing lead, and a reporter asked him why he didn't seem happy, because Kobe seemed very sober and serious after the Game 2 win. And Kobe said, you know, what's there to be happy about? Uh, The job's not finished. And that's sort of the message that I think we got last week from Jay Powell, and that we will continue to get from the Fed until uh, they just see more evidence that inflation's coming down. So that was sort of the takeaway was... Yes, we see that inflation's improving, but uh, we need to see more of that. And if the economy strengthens here, then the Fed will go up again with interest rates. So that was one of the takeaways from the Jackson Symposium. And one of the big concerns they have uh, as an inflation driver is too many jobs, right? Because that employers have to raise their you know wages to attract employees. Uh, I mean, generally. So we're we're going to have a lot of jobs reports out this week and already had one that was actually more what the Fed seems to want. Would, would you agree with that, that they're, they, they might be getting more of what they want this week? That's right. So the, the job openings uh, and labor turnover survey, uh, which came out at the end of August, which is for July, uh, showed that uh, job openings dropped to 8.8 million it was as high as 12 million. And one margin you can measure labor demand is job openings. Now, some people say it's not that reliable because, you know, technology's made it easier to post jobs. Um, and that's a fair point. But still, you see that companies aren't hiring as aggressively as they were in late 2021, early 2022. And the fact so far that labor demand seems to be coming down without an increase in the unemployment rate, and we're going to get the unemployment rate for August in just a couple of days. Um, you know, that that's that's a sign of success so far. But I think that that's where the emphasis is. What the Fed is what the Fed really wants to see is wage growth that slows down. It was running around five percent last year. Um, and if you think about the components of wage growth, it's uh inflation and uh or if you think of it wh- where you get inflation, it's really uh what part of the uh, wage picture is productivity. Um, and so if you have, say, uh, you know, 2.5% um, inflation and 1% increase in labor productivity, that's 3.5% wage growth. The Fed would be fine with that. 5% is probably too high unless we have a big boom in labor productivity. So you would want to see the wage numbers continue to come down. And the way that the Fed and other economists We'll see progress on that. It's just that you have somewhat less hiring um, because that gives you more comfort that supply and demand are better balanced. I'm I'm curious. Um, Logan Motoshami, I don't know if you know who that is. He writes for Housing Wire. He is of the belief that all this robust job growth that we've seen is really just jobs coming back after the pandemic and that it's not really as robust as it might seem. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's definitely a fair thesis to have. If you think about a lot of the things that we've gone through, um, you know, if if they were to happen year after year after year, prices going up, uh, strong hiring year after year after year, uh, that would probably be a bigger cause for concern that you were going to get control of these things. If there are a one-time shift, you know, a one-time increase in the price level for cars, a one-time increase in household formation because people during the pandemic decided to go out on their own. Uh, and you know, rent an apartment, move out of mom and dad's basement. Um, then it means that a lot of the strength that we we've seen, uh, it just can't be expected to continue. So, uh, so I think Logan's uh, point of view is a very sensible one. 
And if that's the case, that this has been kind of, you know, companies in the leisure and hospitality sectors that just haven't been able to catch up to where they were before, but they're now catching up, then job growth would slow, wage growth would slow. And, and you're seeing that. One of the measures of whether the labor market is tight is uh, what share of people are quitting their jobs. Because think about it. You quit your job, you're more likely to quit your job, to voluntarily leave your job if the job market's really strong, you think you're going to get more pay, uh, you can raise your your wages and your income if you go to a different employer. And the quits rate is a measure that we can look at, and it's been coming down. It's it, In the report that just came out at the end of August, it fell back to the level that it was before the pandemic. It was at a, it was at a historically high level before the pandemic, but it went way up in the past couple of years. You think about companies that were you know, throwing panic wages at people to keep them employed or to, to pull them into job openings. And so if the quits rate is coming down, that could also be a sign that some of the frenzy that we saw in hiring uh, is behind us. Nick, there are seemingly so many different labor market indicators and none of them are perfect. If we want to understand Fed thinking, are there any metrics that the Fed favors when they're trying to evaluate the strength of the labor market? Well, you know, we've talked about wage growth and wage growth is important to them. And there's a quarterly uh, wage measure uh, called the Employment Cost Index, which is seen as kind of the best quality measure of uh, wages because it adjusts for changes in the composition of hiring. So if, you know, if, if in one month you have a bunch of low wage jobs being created and then in another month you have a bunch of high wage jobs being created, the the monthly payroll report doesn't quite filter through the those compositional differences. The employment cost index does. Uh, we just got that at the end of July, and wage growth was running in kind of the mid fours. Um, and uh, we'll get that again for the second quarter at the end of October. And so that's one. But you know they they don't just put all their eggs on one indicator. They're going to look at kind of a constellation of indicators. And if they're all generally moving in one direction, which they are right now, which is towards slower wages, like we discussed, fewer openings, um, it's a sign that you know the labor market might still be tight, but it's not as tight as it was. It's coming into balance. And those are generally things the Fed wants to see. Now, if you were to see a big decline in payroll growth, uh, you know that would be a different signal from what we've had. And uh, obviously, people would start to say, well, have we slowed down too much? Or if you saw hiring kind of ticking back higher here, inflation's been falling. So that means our inflation-adjusted wages are actually rising now. And maybe that's supporting more of the consumer spending. We saw strong retail sales in July. So if you saw some kind of acceleration in economic activity, that would also make the Fed maybe a little bit nervous because they think that we're going to get back to the low inflation rates we had before the pandemic by having a period of slower growth. And so if you don't have that slower growth, it calls into question their forecast that we're going to get inflation to come down. You know, we keep joking on the show, let's just stop spending money and we'll solve the problem. <laughs> and that that hasn't been the case. And it seems like part of that was due to people with the stay-at-home orders. They weren't, they weren't spending as much money. They were saving money. And then, man, when they got out, they went crazy. But from the recent reports, it looks like they've kind of 
spent it. Like it's petered out. <laughs> and, and now they're, now they're working on credit cards. Um, so, and then and you hear these reports that, and then students are going to be having to pay their student debt again. Um, how do you see that factoring into people maybe slowing down their spending? Yeah. If you look through the recent earnings reports for the retailers like Macy's or Best Buy, um, you do hear more references to this cautious consumer. You know, executives are, uh, 2022 was great. Everybody was out spending money uh, on things that they hadn't, you know, been able to go buy. Um, and now you're seeing maybe a slowdown. You've seen a slowdown. And the question is, you know, student loan payments, What what is that going to do? Is it really going to crimp uh, consumer spending? Maybe people just don't pay their student loans and they keep spending on on other things. So there are maybe more question marks. Uh, we've also had, you know, we've we've already dealt with some pretty serious questions this year. I mean, after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of other banks in the spring, there were there were concerns of a serious credit crunch. And so far, it seems like we've really avoided at least the more scary scenarios there. Obviously, uh, it's harder to get a loan now if uh, you rely on bank credit. Um, but we haven't seen maybe some of the more dire scenarios realized. And so it does suggest that maybe there's um, more resilience in the economy than people anticipated. Or, you know, maybe we'll be talking six months from now and it'll all be obvious that, you know, the lags of the Fed's rate increases, the, the bank stress that finally caught up with uh, with the economy. But we really haven't seen it through the summer, have we? No, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was going to be my one of my questions that we know that the M2 money supply just blew up during the pandemic, so much money in circulation. And then one of the ways to slow down the economy is pull that money back out, right, by by less lending. And I thought that's what was happening is lending was get, getting becoming more strict and more difficult to get. Is that true for like new businesses or like, obviously, credit cards are being used and banks are fine with that? Yeah, well... You know, if you look at the growth of the money supply, you'd, you'd sort of want to take a trend, you know, kind of a pre-pandemic trend and, and extrapolate, well, this is what it, what growth of the money supply might have been, uh, you know, if not for the pandemic. And so even though the money supply has been contracting over the last year, uh, it's still probably, uh, you know, running above where it would have been. And so that, you know, to the extent that you're a monetarist and you use the money supply, it's it's hard to tell maybe what, what the signal there is. If you look at you know, lending standards, what banks are reporting right now, uh, it's gotten harder to get a loan, uh, you know, commercial industrial loan, commercial real estate banks are really uh, tightening up on on that kind of lending. Uh, in the corporate bond market, I mean, if you're a big borrower and you're borrowing in the investment grade or the lower investment quality, lower credit quality, uh, the high yield market, uh, we haven't seen maybe as much of a pullback there Uh Though with higher interest rates, you know, it is it is more expensive to borrow. Um, so those are, you know, those are questions. I think one of the big questions is to the extent companies locked in lower interest rates during the pandemic when interest rates were just very, very low. If you have a four or five year term loan, that doesn't mature for another couple of years. But what happens when it does? You know, what happens when, when companies have to uh, roll over their debt in 2025 we're looking at interest rates that are still, you know, as high as they are right now, then you could see more of a bite. And we just haven't, you know, we haven't had interest rates that high for that long. So it's hard to see that effect yet. Nick, from your understanding of 
the Fed's own projections, how are they feeling about a recession? Do you know, we, we keep hearing these signals that they're okay with a recession and they're forecasting them, but I see a lot of upward revisions to GDP forecasts recently. And I'm wondering if the Fed is more confident now that they might be able to achieve their so-called soft landing. Right. I think that's going to be the big question, Dave, heading into the Fed's um, next interest rate meeting, which is in mid-September. So uh, every quarter they produce these economic projections. And in June, officials were raising their projections for inflation. They they saw inflation coming down a little bit slower, um, but they still had growth declining uh, in the second half of this year. And they had higher interest rates. You know, they they thought that because inflation wasn't going to come down quite as quickly, they were going to have to raise interest rates a little bit more. Now, you know, you have the first set of projections that are coming since the declines in inflation from June and July. And, you know, we'll see about August here in a few weeks, um, what happened with inflation in August. And so there's a chance that they're going to bring down their forecasts for inflation, certainly for 2023, but they might have to revise up their forecasts for growth because as you noted, the, you know, whether it's a recession or just a period of below trend growth, the Fed thinks that the long run trend growth rate for the U.S. economy is just below 2%. So if you're not doing that, if you're not growing below trend or you're not having a recession, then it raises the question, what is going to you know, crunch demand enough to get inflation down the way that you've been forecasting? Now, you know, sometimes economists refer to this as an immaculate uh, disinflation or an, a, a period in which you kind of have a painless drop in inflation. And we've certainly had that so far, right? Inflation came down this summer without a huge cost or really any cost in the labor market. Um, But that's because you've had supply chain improvement. Uh, You know, rent growth is slowing and that's going to continue to provide some help to getting inflation down. But I think the worry right now is if the growth picture is getting better, what does that mean for inflation, not six months from now, but maybe a year and a half from now, the end of next year? The Fed in, in June was projecting they'd get inflation down to just around 2.5% at the end of 2024. Do they still think they can do that if we don't get a period of slower growth? Do they just say, well, we think we're going to get the slower growth because of everything we did on interest rates, but it's going to come later? I think that'll be um, an important question uh, for the September meeting. And you know, it'll be, uh, it'll kind of tell us how much more they think interest rates have to go up. In June, they were projecting that they'd have to take rates up one, you know, one more increase from here since they did one in July. Uh, And so one question is, do they still think they have to do that? I haven't heard a lot of support for more than one increase. So I think the question is going to be, you know, are they, are they comfortable here or not? And the growth picture and the inflation picture cutting in opposite directions. The other the other big change we've had since the Fed's last meeting has been the increase in August in interest rates, especially, you know, 10, 30-year loan rates have gone up quite a bit. And the Fed expects that to slow down the economy. They've actually wanted to see financial conditions tighten. And so that's happening now. But that also, you kind of have to say, all right, well, you're getting better growth, but you're also getting higher interest rates, market-determined, you know, long-term interest rates, and so does that offset some of the concern you might have from stronger growth? 
Wow, I hadn't really looked at it that way. I, I I was really happy that we might be avoiding a recession, but now it's like that means uh, rates higher for longer, and maybe we don't hit that two percent goal. I mean, how could we get to that two percent outside of a recession? Well, I mean, that would sort of be this immaculate disinflation or soft landing story, where you just continue to get, you know, all the things that went wrong in the pandemic. They're now reversing. And so you're getting um, increase in labor supply. We've had more immigration. Uh, that's maybe taking some of the pressure off of wages. And so, you know, if, if the supply side of the economy heals, and that's something the Fed can't directly control, if we get, you know, a lot more apartments being delivered, and that's going to bring down rents, if we get more auto production, and that's going to bring down uh, car prices, or at least prevent them from going up quite as much as they've been going up. Uh, so if you really were to see a really positive response on the supply side of the economy, then uh, and you reduce demand enough, you know, maybe you can get inflation down. I think, you know, it, it looks more possible that that'll happen than it did a few months ago because you are getting these better inflation numbers. I think the other point with a soft landing, you know, people talk about a soft landing, which is which is really where the Fed is able to bring inflation down without a recession or without a serious recession, um, to get something like that, historically, you've needed the Fed to cut interest rates once it's clear that they've that they've done enough. Or maybe if they've gone too far, they take back some of the interest rate increases. And so, uh, you know, in 1994, the Fed raised interest rates by 300 basis points over a 12-month period. And then Greenspan cut interest rates uh, three times, 75 basis points in total. This time, I think the Fed is going to be a lot more careful about doing that because we have had inflation that's much higher than it was in the 1990s. And they've warned about this, uh, you know, repeating the mistakes of the 1970s. One of the mistakes of the 1970s was that they eased too soon. You had what was called stop go, where they would, you know, stop, inflation would rise, so they'd have to resume interest rate increases. And so to really nail a soft landing, you have to be confident that inflation is going to come all the way back down and you're cutting interest rates because you think that's going to happen. And if we're in an environment where it sort of looks like, well, inflation's going to settle out, but maybe closer to 3% than 2%, everyone should know the Fed has a 2% inflation target. They think that's important because it helps center expectations in the public's eye. And if it looks like maybe the Fed is going to abandon that target, uh, it can really mess mess things up. So they're going to be serious about shooting for 2%. And if it looks like inflation isn't getting back to 2%, uh, it'll call into question how aggressively they might be able to, or how quickly they might be able to undo some of the increases they've had. And that, I think, will continue to create higher recession risk uh, in 2024, even if we don't go into a recession this year. I think that's a, a great point, Nick, and I tend to ag agree with the sentiment that the Fed has been very candid about the fact that they are going to try and they don't want to repeat the mistakes of the 1970s. And I keep thinking about what Kathy and I talk about all the time, which is the housing market here. And if you think about how the housing market would react to probably even slight interest rate cuts, it would probably spur a frenzy of activity, which would probably reignite inflation very quickly, even though housing prices, you know, aren't necessarily in every inflation category. You just think about the amount of economic activity 
that the housing in general spurs. And so it makes sense to me that the the Fed, given their stated targets, wants to keep interest rates higher for longer, even if it's just for housing, but obviously it's for other sectors beyond just what we talk about on this show. Yeah, I mean, housing, there have been a lot of things in this cycle that have been unusual, right? The post-COVID recovery has been unlike any from post-war experience. And the housing the housing cycle part of it has been, I think, a complete surprise. I mean, especially at the Fed, if you had said, you're going to get a 7% mortgage rate and you're going to see new home sales having you know bottomed out home prices have uh, possibly reached a bottom here, right? We just saw the Case-Shiller Index, I think, for July, June or July, or I guess it was June, uh, we're going back up now, you know, that that's not something a whole lot of people uh, had on their bingo cards for this year. Uh, you know, to be clear, the, the way that inflation gets calculated by the government agencies, home prices may not play as big a role as people think. They're looking at owner's equivalent rent, which is sort of an imputed rent for your house. Um, and so, you know, during the housing boom of 2004 and five, uh, Inflation actually, shelter inflation didn't go up nearly as much as the 30% increase uh, in the, you know, in the case Schiller index, um, because what what's happening in the rental side of the market matters a lot. But, you know, that doesn't really change anything uh, of your point, Dave. It's true that if you see a reacceleration in residential real estate, that's, you know, that's just one less place that you're going to get the below trend growth that the Fed is looking for. Someone said to me yesterday, the Fed broke housing in 2022. They can't really break housing again. So even if it's not going to be a huge source of strength for the economy here, I mean, it looks like the resale market's just frozen right now, uh, then neither is it really going to be a source of drag or slowdown. And it just means that if the Fed is serious about seeing a slowdown, they're going to have to rely on other parts of the economy to deliver it. Yeah, the the housing market. I, I I'm guessing took them took everyone by surprise. It's shocking that we're we're back at our at our former peaks. And you said we've got to fix the the supply side and build more. It, is that even possible to build enough supply in housing to meet the demand? Well, you have a lot of rental supply that's going to come on the market, right? So uh, it'll be interesting to see you know where the rental market goes in the next couple of years. And what that does to you know vacancy rates and rents, um, I think that'll be you know it'll be an interesting question. You also have these demographic forces that are uh, quite constructive, right? I mean, the millennial generations coming of age, moving into their peak home buying years uh, or rental housing years. So you do have um, you know sort of uh, positive forces against this backdrop of higher interest rates and really terrible uh, housing affordability. I went through some of the earnings calls for the home improvement companies, you know, Lowe's, Home Depot, and they feel good about kind of the medium to long run that there's, you know, people have housing equity right now. If you think about how different this recovery has been from the period after the housing bust, you know, people have equity, they're spending money on their homes. If they're not moving, they're fixing that, you know, kitchen, doing the bathroom remodel. Uh, and so, it's a better it's a better environment for a lot of the home product companies, um, even if you don't have the same degree of you know existing home sales that we were used to um, in the in the earlier part of the century. Well, we we talked a little bit about mortgage rates, and if mortgage rates come down, you know it could unlock the market, but it would also bring on a new frenzy. 
we saw that 10-year – and mortgage rates are generally – I'm saying this for the audience, not you, um, but mortgage rates generally tied to the 10-year treasury, which we saw go up, I suppose, in anticipation of people seeing not a recession and seeing robust growth and not getting where the Fed wants to be and they're going to raise rates and keep going and so forth. But just this week, we started to see that back off and and a 10-year treasury come down, which then brought mortgage rates down a bit. Do you see that continuing, that trend of the 10-year coming down? It's hard to predict kind of the very near-term fluctuations. It's interesting that, you know, the last time we hit 7%, which was last November, we weren't there very long. Uh, people got worried about growth, uh, more optimistic about inflation, and yields came down. But uh, you know, if I think back to a few months before that, maybe May, April of last year, when the rate when the rate increases really got underway in earnest, and there were a lot of people who thought, "Oh, we'll get back to a five percent, four and a half percent, maybe five and a half percent mortgage eventually." And I think now you're seeing more doubt about that. You're seeing more doubt about whether interest rates will fall back as low as they were, not just before the pandemic. Uh, but you know, in the in the kind of 2010s period, where we got used to having mortgage rates um, between four and five percent, and you know, there are a couple of different reasons for that. One is that there's just more treasury supply. We're, we're running bigger deficits. We've we've cut taxes. We've boosted spending. Uh, we have to spend more on healthcare as you know the baby boomers age, and so you have more treasury supply, and somebody's going to have to you know, digest all of that, and they might require a higher yield for it. A couple of things that happened more recently that are being pointed to as catalysts for this increase in interest rates. One is that the Bank of Japan has been changing their monetary policy. They had had a fixed cap on long-term Japanese government bonds, and they've suggested they might let that cap on interest rates rise a little bit. Well, Japan's the largest foreign buyer of U.S. treasuries. So if Japanese investors now have a more attractive you know, they can earn something on their 10-year JGBs. Maybe they aren't going to buy as many treasuries. So you've, you've begun to see other forces that were keeping interest rates lower. Long-term interest rates were held down because you had strong foreign demand. Uh, now, if you have some of these forces reversing, I do think it calls into question, maybe, you know, a 6% mortgage rate could be the new normal. Maybe not. Maybe we go back into a recession and the Fed has to cut all the way and you do end up with lower interest rates. But I do think there's uh, maybe more uh, potential for you know this to end up in different places from, from where people were expecting. Nick, thank you so much for being here. We, we really appreciate it. This has been another eye-opening, very informative conversation with you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. If people want to follow your reporting or check out your book, where should they do that? Um, I'm on Twitter at Nick Timoros. And you can go to my website, which is uh, N-I-C-K-T-I-M-I-R-A-O-S dot com. All right. Great. Thanks again, Nick. Kathy, what do you think of Nick's thoughts on the Fed? He just makes so much sense. And it really helps people like me and you who are trying to make decisions, financial decisions. And it depends a lot on what the Fed is going to do. So I, I think he brought a lot of clarity. Absolutely. I, I, The more I listen to people like Nick, who know what they're talking about, the more convinced I am that the Fed is not lowering interest rates anytime in the near future. And I think we all need to just accept that. 
That doesn't mean necessarily that mortgage rates can't go down a little bit. I, I do think there's a chance that they'll go down a bit from where they are. But where we got at the end where he was saying, you know, we should expect 6% interest rates. I, I think that's, in my mind, at least how I'm going to operate for the next year or so is thinking that maybe they'll come back down to six and a half, something like that. But I don't think we're getting a five handle anytime soon. And <laughs> that's okay. As long as you just sort of accept that, you can make your investing decisions accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was kind of a light bulb moment for me too, where I've been really thrilled about a soft landing and like, wow, is this possible after all the Fed has done to try to wreak havoc? But uh, but then on the flip side of that is, oh, that means we might not get down to the inflation target anytime soon um, if the economy isn't going into recession. So it's it's a it's opposite world. Like I've said so many times, good news is bad news. Bad news is good news. Um, I just look forward to someday having just normal news. I'm with you. I just I don't think it's going to come for a while. I just like to be <laughs> realistic. Like you said, I think the only way the Fed cuts interest rates is being forced to do it, right? They Their whole goal is to control inflation until the labor market breaks and we have a serious recession. They have no reason to cut interest rates and they're not going to do it for real estate investors. Like they don't care. No. And so I think that's not a great, that's good because rates come down, but then we're in a serious recession. So like either way, there is probably some unfortunate economic realities staring us in the face for the next six months to a year, maybe longer. I don't know, but I don't buy the idea that like, as soon as inflation dips down into the twos, like the feds are going to, the feds going to cut rates. I just don't see that happening. I feel like they're going to no. hold it up for as long as they can. And we just need to deal with it. Yeah. Their fear of inflation is greater than their fear of recession, which is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Exactly. All right, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us and for asking so many great and thoughtful questions. We appreciate it. People want to follow you. Where should they do that? Realwealth.com is where you can find me and also on Instagram at Kathy Fetke. All right. And I am at the Data Deli on Instagram, or you can always find me on Bigger Pockets. And if you like this episode and are, you know, know people who like talking about the Fed or this stuff, share it with a friend. We always appreciate when you find an episode of On the Market that you like if you share it with your community so they can be more informed and also make great informed investing decisions just like you. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you for the next episode of On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. 
And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.